We are continuing on this morning in a series called A Picture of God, looking at the, the life and teachings and events in Jesus' earthly uh, ministry, because we believe that if, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. The Apostle John says this, Paul says this, Jesus himself tells his disciples this before he leaves, that if you've seen me, you've, you've seen the Father. And today we're going to look at uh, an event in Jesus' ministry, kind of a famous passage in John 3 where Jesus has this encounter with a man named Nicodemus um, and contains one of the most famous verses probably in all of Scripture that many of you have seen and have memorized and seen advertised at football games and things like this. And so we're going to look at this story about Nicodemus and the idea of, of self-worth and, and working to try to earn God's love and favor and performance and things like that to try to get God's approval. Now, uh, from nearly infancy, we are sort of raised in an environment of performance-based self-worth. Uh, the things we do or do not do bring praise, or they bring chastisement, or they bring even discipline. You know, like when, when a kid finally learns to use the bathroom, there's great praise, and rightly so, uh, as you understand as parents. And, uh, but if a kid doesn't eat their vegetables, there's like, you know, this, this discipline or whatever that, that comes to encourage them to do that. Uh, if, if, you, if you get good grades, there's high praise. If you don't get good grades, there's like this intense scrutiny that comes onto your life to, to do better in school. But, you know, it applies to us as adults, too. We work really hard and we sell enough contracts that we get a bonus of some sort and the company takes care of us. We make the sports team, you know, there's praise. If we don't, maybe you need to practice more, try harder. Um, and this, this goes on and on in our lives that, that we find our identity and our self-worth in what we're able to do and what we're able to produce and how we're able to perform. And we do these in a way to get others' approval, to get their love, to get their praise and we start to even do these things to get our own approval and our own praise because of what's happened out there with other people, and it starts to get into this cycle. And, and I would argue that it even works its way into and creeps into the world of the church and, and in religion and in faith. And Christianity has a history of people trying to do things to, to, to win the favor of the authority of the hour. Uh, the authority of the day, whether it be a pastor or a priest or the church or even God himself, we try to get their favor. Like we think, well, if I live in, if I live in a monastery and I'm completely devoted to God in that way, then, then I will have his approval. If I fast for a week, then, then God will show favor towards me. If I dress like a Puritan, then, then I'll be righteous. Then God will honor me and will reward me in my life. If I volunteer like crazy at church and do everything that needs to happen, then, then they'll love me, the pastor will love me, God will love me, and my life will be good. And all too often, churches have bought into that as well. Can I just admit that? That churches have bought into this and they, they are at the ready to make all sorts of demands on people's lives to get them to have this approval. And what ends up happening is we have this internal mindset that is always scrambling to try to find our footing, to secure it for ourselves, our good standing with others, with authority figures, with parents, with spouses, with in-laws, coaches, teachers, and I would say with God. Am I loved? Am I worthy? Am I special? Am I valuable? Am I safe? Am I in or am I outside still? Am I on the team? Am I a loser? Am I good enough? And, and we work and we strive and we struggle and we fret to try and we end up self-loathing too, trying to achieve these things and trying to achieve this 
approval. And then when we feel like we've gotten it, then we put ourselves into the in crowd and we start making other people in the out crowd and they have to now win our approval. And this circle just goes around and around. Have you ever felt this? Have you felt this in your life, in your job, in your home, in your church? Have you felt it with God? What I want to look at today is a picture of God that reveals a loving God that pursues us as we are, not having earned anything, a God who loves us and wants to give us new life, not a life that escapes this world and lives in some la-la land of ignorance or, or just muddles through life until heaven someday, but a God that operates with a totally different economy and wants to give us a new kingdom to live in now and to get to enjoy that, that freedom of that life now, a kingdom in which we are free from the approval games altogether. And we have self-worth because we're loved by God, because he has chosen us, because he's called us sons and daughters. When, can I just say, when I discovered this for myself uh, several years ago, it, it changed everything. It changed how I viewed the world. It changed how I produced, or how I, how I worked and produced things. It changed my, my family life because I realized I'd been reborn and I could live in, in a new way, in a completely different kingdom than a world of self-approval. And so I want to look at some of this we see in, in John chapter 3. Um, I would encourage you to study it this week, look over it, meditate on John 1, 2, and 3, maybe think about some more of this as you go about your week. But if you remember or you're familiar with John and, and the book of John, in John chapter 1, we see him writing that, that Jesus came and was a light in the darkness, that he came and was to bring the light of life into humanity, into the world, and that he was the light and life of men. He took on flesh. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that, that he took on humanity and was with us, and I would argue is with us still, that he was the radiance of God's glory in human form, and he was a light in the darkness. And John says, but the darkness didn't understand it. The darkness couldn't take hold of it, and the darkness certainly wouldn't overcome it. And the imagery here is, is of a dark room that, that you can imagine a light comes into and starts to illuminate the world around them so that people could see in a new way. God was bringing light into the darkness, making order out of chaos, which really to me is John's way of saying this was a new creation that was starting. This is a Genesis-type story of, of light coming into darkness. And as we see the first couple chapters of John, we see that Jesus is, is going about doing these miracles, and he's teaching with authority, and the people are starting to, to flock to him. And it starts a bit of an ideological conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, uh, because he is challenging their way of thinking. He's challenging the religious leaders' way of interpreting Scripture and the narrative that God had been writing for all these years. And by doing so, and people flocking to him, he was actually taking power away from these leaders, and so they're not happy about it, and, and, and he starts telling people, you can have a self-worth outside of what these religious leaders are telling you. And a lot of it, I would say, is because Jesus himself had a self-worth and a confidence that didn't come from religion and legalism. It came from a right standing with the Father. It came from communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He knew he was loved, and he operated with, with confidence and with, with a self-worth that only can come from God. He knew he was loved. And in the book of John in chapter 3, he actually has such a communion with the Father that he starts speaking about himself in the first person plural. He's saying, he gives a testimony about himself. He says, I don't need the testimony of anybody else. We know what we're about. 
We know what we're doing. We know what we have done. We, we know who we are. And he's talking about this relationship that he's so intimate with the Father and the Spirit. And it gives him a, a confidence and a self-worth to do a different kind of ministry than, than the religious body of that day could ever do. So this, this group of, of religious leaders, you, you read about them all over the New Testament, um, particularly in the Gospels, uh, one of the groups is called the Pharisees. And they were a, sort of a religious and a political group of the day uh, that had these, these strict rules and regulations that they had taken from the law, the covenant that God had given Moses. And they kept interpreting it and reinterpreting it and expanding the laws until there were several hundred minute laws that the people needed to obey and to be, to be righteous, to be seen as, as good and having self-worth. They need to obey all these things. And Look, it came from a place of it came from a place of, of goodness in their heart that they wanted to honor God. Okay, like we, we forget that sometimes we give the, the Pharisees such a bad rap, but they were trying to honor God. But instead of realizing they were loved by God and living out the law and the covenant, they were trying to earn God's love by living out the law and covenant. So they keep making law after law after law and try to get people to live in it. And 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 they believed that if they could just behave properly and honor God by doing all these legalistic type external things, these external behaviors, God would finally come back to Israel. He'd come back to Israel, and he would make Israel great again. He would set up camp in Jerusalem at the temple, and he would rule the world from there. This is what they were trying to get to happen. He would bring the kingdom if they could just behave well enough, and then they would get to rule the kingdom. You hear it? There's a twist there. They, they're trying to work so hard to get God to bring the kingdom so that they could rule the kingdom and the world, and they could decide who was in and who was out. I don't know if you can pick up on that or if you've read that in the scriptures before, but they were trying to use laws and legislation to control the people, to get them to behave so that they could gain, they themselves could gain more power, so they could gain God's approval, so that they could be in control. There was an in crowd, there was an out crowd, and the Pharisees would determine all of that based on external behaviors and performance. Well, one night, one of these Pharisees named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He comes sneaking in at night to see this new teacher with authority. He comes in the dark to find out more about Jesus. And they get into this uh, bit of an intense back-and-forth conversation about spiritual and religious matters. Now, to me, it's important to notice that this happens at night. I mean, think about this. Have you ever walked outside when the power's out and you see there's no light coming from homes, there's no light coming from Bethlehem or from Allentown? Like, it's dark. I know, like, when we lost power during Hurricane Sandy for a couple days, like, the neighborhood was dark. Well, this is first century Palestine. Like, there isn't a ton of electricity. It's dark. He's sneaking in, in the dark of night, to see Jesus. Why is he walking around in the dark? I mean, think about the symbolism of that. Remember Isaiah said that, that a people walking in darkness have seen a great light. You can see this starting to form in people's minds, that there's something here about this man. We're walking around in the dark. We want to see this light. And he's sneaking around, probably because he doesn't want to get caught. He doesn't want his Pharisee friends to see him talking to this leader that's taking authority from them. And I imagine that he's wondering, who is this Jesus guy? Is he for real? Is, is he legit? Is he in? Is he out? Like, what? how do I determine what to do with this guy? What's his deal? And after a long day of, of ministry and traveling the countryside and healings and preaching, Jesus takes his visit. Middle of the night, Jesus takes his visit. Jesus makes time for him. 
I don't know about you, but there are days, you can ask my family, you can ask our community group, there are days where like, I'm just tired and I don't want to be with people anymore. I've had enough, I just want a break, I just want to take a rest, and, and I have to be honest about that sometimes, but not Jesus. Not in this case. He's always got time for people who are coming to him. This is a picture of our God. Not overburdened, not stressed, not selfish, always willing to visit with us in our time of need. So it says that Nicodemus comes and he says to Jesus, teacher, he says, we know you are a teacher from God because you couldn't be doing these things that you are if you weren't from God. You can be doing these miracles, teaching with this authority. And, and it's written in um, like a, a statement form. We know that you're a teacher come from God, but I think it's more of an, an inquiry. He's, he's asking a question. He's, he's poking a little bit to say, like, who are you? What, what are you really about? And Jesus answers him and goes right after the heart of Nicodemus's inquiry, right after the heart of his life of legalism. Jesus says back to him, you want the kingdom? Like, he says, your teacher come from God. And Jesus says, you want the kingdom? No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, this statement is shocking. It should be shocking to us, and it's shocking for more than one reason to Nicodemus. It's a, it's a slight against Nicodemus and his way of doing life. It's a slight against the Pharisees' efforts to, to get into the kingdom. Jesus is saying there's a standard for getting into the kingdom of God, and it's not what you've been doing, Nicodemus. It's a different thing altogether. It's not in his performance and in his self-righteousness. It's being born again, being born anew. And Nicodemus is somewhat, I imagine, incredulous and asks what all of us probably would have asked, what are you talking about, you weirdo? Like, be born again. What, like, what do you mean? And he, he says, go back into the womb again? Like, how, how is this possible? There's no way to do this. What are you talking about? How does this, this work, this kingdom that you're talking about? So Jesus, again, expands the thinking a little bit more. And he says, Nicodemus, you're, you're thinking about this from a physical standpoint of, of flesh and human effort and willpower, but what I'm saying is a spiritual reality, that a man can be reborn spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the, by the cleansing that the Holy Spirit brings, by the new life that he brings about. He says, Jesus goes on to say, but the Spirit is like a wind that blows about on a windy day that you don't know where it comes from or even or, or where it's going. You can't really see the wind, but it's powerful. It's moving. It's strong. It's doing something. Jesus says people are reborn like that, in that way when the Spirit comes. It's a mystery, but it's, it's spiritual. It's not this fleshly thing that you've been working so hard on. People get reborn like that. You don't get reborn by these external behaviors. This, it's an internal reality that changes the external world, starts to work out and change the world around us. Nicodemus' head is probably exploding at this point, and he says, how? Like, how? You're talking about this thing. Like, what are you talking about? And Jesus then just un- unloads a, a dump truck of truth and love on a Nicodemus. He says, look, Nicodemus, you don't even understand the wind, like a thing of the earth. I can't even begin to explain something heavenly, like the movement of the Holy Spirit to rebirth people. He's poking at his religious authority a little bit, saying, you don't even understand a thing of the earth. How could I explain this to you? He says, but this much is true. I am from heaven, all right. 
And if people look to me, they will have, he says, eternal life or full life. They'll have the kingdom life you've been searching for, Nicodemus. Jesus goes on to say, the son of man, which is, uh, we've talked about this before, the son of man is a word that they would use to, wait, to describe the Messiah they were waiting for, the Savior. Jesus says, the son of man has come to be lifted up so that when people look to him, they will be saved, i.e., they will get the kingdom when they look to the Son of Man being lifted up. He's already pointing ahead to his crucifixion, saying when the Son of Man is lifted up and people look to that, that's when they receive the kingdom. And Jesus went on further to say, God loved this world so much that he sent his Son, that he sent me, the Messiah, so that whoever believes in me would have the full kingdom, eternal life. God didn't Listen to this. God didn't send the Son to condemn the world like you and the Pharisees are doing, Nicodemus. He didn't send the Son to condemn the world, but God sent him so that people could live through him, so that they could find life. And whoever believes in him will be saved from their sin, from their brokenness that leads to their deaths. This is the light, Jesus says, that's coming into the darkness. Can you just imagine this? Jesus, in the middle of all this, says, this is the light that's coming into the darkness. Imagine the scene again. It's pitch black. It's dark. Nicodemus is slinking about in the darkness trying to get answers, and Jesus says, this is the light that's coming in, that God loves the world. And he goes on and says, but listen, Nicodemus, people are already condemned because they don't want to come into the light. They're already living outside of it willingly. And they know that if they come into the light, they'll see that all of their performing, all of their religion, all of their their legalism, all of their self-righteousness, it's actually meaningless in the light of God. It doesn't mean anything before the God of the world who simply offers love and grace and mercy. This is the light in the life of men. Works mean nothing in God's presence. He already loves the people. They don't need to do anything to get into God's presence. He already loves them. So whoever lives in that truth, what I would say is light, is freedom, is hope, whoever lives in that walks around in the light and lives in the freedom of that. And that is the full life. That is the kingdom of God come to earth. And Jesus says, but whoever wants to keep on depending on their legalism, on their works, on their performance, on getting their self-worth from their behavior and their external actions, he says they're still in the dark. They're still outside of the kingdom. And the conversation ends there. He just leaves Nicodemus to wade through this and figure out what he believes. And we don't hear of Nicodemus again until four chapters later, where Nicodemus is with his group of Pharisee uh, friends, his counterparts, and they keep getting riled up because Jesus has all this authority. And they say that they're going to try to conspire against Jesus and get a hold of him somehow. And, and it, John records that Nicodemus says, hey, like, shouldn't we at least hear him out? Shouldn't we maybe listen to him before we, we put him on trial? And, and the Pharisees squash his thought immediately and say, oh, are you, are you from Galilee too? He says, are you with him? Nicodemus, are you from Galilee? Because if you look into the scriptures, you'll see that, that no prophet comes from Galilee. 
that the Messiah doesn't come from there, and, and that's the end of the conversation. The authority squashes down on the light that is starting to, to, to blossom inside of Nicodemus, and they, they use their, their power to overrule him. They use their authority to, to become even more exclusive and more elite. They don't want outside thinking. Listen, let those who have ears hear, okay, that when you encounter a person or a church, or a religious authority, or an organization that is elitist and exclusive and operates with a mentality of, we know who's in, we know who's out, run away. Run away. That's a life of of Pharisees. Run away from that and run to the gospel that says God loves everyone. It's up to him to see who comes in. That's the way the wind blows and moves in our world. Because this is what we see in this story. The picture of God we get in this interaction of Jesus and Nicodemus is that our God loves the world and says, no one is in, okay? God says, no one is in. They all already stand condemned. All are out. And Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because they're already condemned anyway, because they're headed for death ever since the garden. Jesus didn't come to condemn them further. They're already on that path. God has loved the world and wants to see everyone brought in to the light, into the kingdom. Do you catch that? Do you hear this? This is our God. No one can see the kingdom of God unless the Spirit does that work in him or her, unless the Spirit makes them born again. That's where that term comes from, to be born again. The Spirit has to do that. Now, combine that with the statement of John 3.16 that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to save them and not condemn them. Think about who it's saying. Who does God love then? He loves the world. He loves who? The religious? The self-righteous? The ones who are performing well? The ones who are behaving right? No, more than that. He loved the world, namely everyone, not just the religious performing types. He loves prisoners. He loves pastors. He loves Shady businessmen. He loves Bible reading, stay at home parents who do studies all day. He loves the unathletic. He loves the Olympian. He loves the prim and proper churchgoer as much as he loves the prostitutes. He loves the Democrats and the Republicans, the refugees and the citizens. He loves the sinner and the saint. He loves the celibate, the straight, the gay, the married, the divorced. He loves the sinner, the saint. He loves you. He loves me. He loves everyone. This is the point. He loves the world. And he loves them before they ever do anything. You understand that? He loves them before they ever do a single thing to earn his favor. He's not waiting for you or me to impress him. He has already looked on us and says, I love you. You are made in my image. You are my children. Come, walk in the light. Friends, who is allowed in? Everyone. Who will be kept out? The self-righteous. The ones who say, I've got it under control. I'm going to work my way in. The people who are in are those who look to Jesus on the cross and say, that's my God. That's the one who loves me. He's the one I want to be with. Friends, we are so loved by God that we can come and bother him in the middle of the night, in our darkness, and ask him to lead us into the light. We're so loved by God that we can lay down all of our performance and our quests for self-worth and be reborn. This is the love of our Father that we see in Jesus. If you go back to, to John 1, 
there's a couple verses right in the beginning there in 12 and 13 where, listen to what John says about Jesus. He says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of, of natural descent. So he's saying it's above physical reality. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. John's saying he gave them the right to be called children of God when they look to him. And that word there, if, if you have a pen, like underline where it says he gave us the right, circle it and write the word power next to it. Because that word in all its fullness really means he gave them the power to become children of God. He gave them the ability to, to choose into this. They have the power to become children of God. Now, power to become children. Like, think about this. What does a, what does a baby bring to the table as far as what it can offer? what it can produce, what it can do. What do children offer even? Not much. They're pretty selfish, pretty powerless. They don't have a lot of authority. John's saying he gave us the power to become powerless, dependent, innocent. This is what Jesus offers us. By believing in him, we have the power to become powerless children in the family of God. That is how much the love that the Father has for us. He loved us while we were still yet sinners and then gave us the power to come into the family of God. Still fumbling around in the darkness, trying to find our way, he sheds a light on us and says, you have power to come into the family of God. Instead of sending Jesus to come and declare, who's in, who's out, Condemning people, he says, Jesus came to demonstrate God's love for us. He took on flesh so that we could be made spiritually alive. Rather than earning the kingdom, Jesus brought the kingdom to us. And rather than creating a powerful elite group that gets to decide who's in and out, Jesus gave up his power so that we could have power to become children of God. Think of the freedom of that, friends, of being in the light like that. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe your family was great. Maybe your family was, was totally jacked up. You have been reborn into a new family. You have a new start, a new family that you're part of. Maybe you've put so much pressure on yourself to perform and, and make a name for yourself at work or in school or in sports or even in God, and Jesus says, walk into the light. That's actually the darkness. The Father wants to make you reborn with a spirit of, of sonship, of, of daughterhood, and make you part of his family where you are loved and free. There is no need to perform any more. Maybe you grew up or came from a, a super religious background or a, a never-ending quest for self-improvement and, and self-righteousness. Walk into the light. Expose that for what they are. Useless in gaining an in to the kingdom because you were loved before you did any of those things. Any of those things. And, and can I just speak to people who've been Christians for a long time? There's this mentality that, that we need to do for God. We need to make sure we keep earning our place in the family. That's ridiculous. Walk with the Father and allow him to guide you where he wants you to go, what he wants you to do, what he wants you to lean into. You don't need to earn anything anymore. You get to live in the freedom of being loved by God. And all of this was why, while we were still sinners, while we were still far from God, 
And what we see is that it comes to the fullness at the cross. We see that God's love comes in all of its fullness at the cross. When, when the darkness of humanity did all it could do to snuff out the light. When evil and darkness uh, all compiled on top of Jesus trying to snuff out the light. And they lifted up the Son of Man for all to see. They raised him up, like he said, for all to see. The all-powerful having given himself up as a ransom for us to set us free. Jesus, the mighty and powerful one, made himself powerless so that we could have power and the right to be called children of God because of our forgiveness of sins, that we can move into the light. This is the glorious exchange, church, that we are no longer slaves to sin and to death, but we have been freed to have power to become children and full heirs of God in the kingdom now and forever. That is what eternal full life looks like. This is the love of our God. Would you pray with me? Father, this, this is a spiritual reality. This is a spiritual truth. And I ask that, that you would move in your spirit right now like a wind that we don't know where it comes from or where it's going, would you move in our midst and touch our hearts? Would you touch our minds and open our eyes to receive your love and your right standing, to receive the power to become powerless children in your family? Would you help us understand your love for us that we can live in freedom, no longer needing to prove ourselves in our own minds, to ourselves, to our family, to our church, to you, most importantly, that we can live in freedom of light and life. Would you help us wrestle with this? Help us believe this. Help us tell others they can believe this and live in freedom. God, that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to live a perfect life on this earth. That you allowed, and he allowed himself to have darkness converge upon him and crush him and that the skies were even darkened when he was on the cross, that light had been snuffed out, but that in his resurrection we find full life, that we can inherit the kingdom now and forever. Help us understand that. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we're going to take communion now. Michelle's going to come up and uh, read some scripture for us, so just rest for a minute, allow her to, to minister to us through the word here. John 19, verse 28 through 42. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture will be fulfilled. 
not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they lead Jesus there. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we have nothing to prove, like Jim was talking about. We can just come to him, be ourselves, and just receive. We can freely accept his ultimate love for us. So today we have an opportunity, a privilege, really, to um, partake in communion together as a family, as children of God. We have um, bread and juice in the back, and it's a reminder to us of the symbolism of Jesus' body has broken for us, of the blood that was poured out and shed for us, and um, it's really just a celebration of what he has done for us, and all we really need to do is just receive his love. So um, we've got, we can make two lines back here and, and really just be thankful and celebrate everything that he has done for us and continues to do for us, working in and through us. Um, will you first pray with me? Thank you, God, for rescuing us, rescuing us through Jesus. Thank you for being a God who understands, forgives, redeems. I pray we can be a light and share your love for us with others. Help us trust you, especially when we're in the dark and fully accept your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So come to the table and receive. Friends, oftentimes we get so fixated on the cross that we forget the rest of the story, that Jesus did make a way for us, did part the waters of sin and death for us through his death, but also through his resurrection. And so we gather here on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week, to remember what the disciples found, that we find the same thing, that the tomb of Jesus is empty. That, that his new life means new life for us. That the creation motif that started in John 1 with light coming into the darkness resumes in force at the resurrection. That light comes out of the darkness and a new world begins. And we now get to live in the freedom of that as children of God, loved by him, needing to prove nothing. It's all done by Jesus on our behalf and we get to live new lives. I would encourage you to think about that this week when you go to work and you're trying to prove yourself in your family, in your, in your spiritual disciplines that you do, that you get to live in the freedom that that has brought. That we get to live in the light of God as his children. I pray that over you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a great week.